0: Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But so we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Punctual Bochivo 2.0 Seed Treatment System increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. Huh? Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is the Corn Roots Movement. Ask your DASF seed advisor about Punctual Bochivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow in little directions information America's farmers and ranchers need to know, Adam's on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Hello everyone and welcome to Adam's on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us on this Christmas Eve. Thank you for letting us be part of your day. Merry Christmas to all of you. We hope you have a wonderful blessed holiday, a very safe one, a lot of time with family and friends. Coming up on our program today... We're going to look back on uh, several issues. So much going on these last few days ahead of the uh, holiday break. We're going to talk about the... uh the presidential campaign with Jarrett Renshaw. He's the political reporter for Reuters. He's been out on the campaign trail with some of the candidates. We'll talk about ag issues in this upcoming presidential campaign. We're also going to hear from the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Exports Federation, Dan Hallstrom. We talked recently about some of the trade views here at the end of the year, what it means going into 2020, and also a look back at the, the year 2019, with all the challenges, there has been some pretty good uh, numbers for U.S. meat exports, and we'll talk about that. But we're going to start things off talking with Scott Irwin, a uh, recent conversation we had. Scott is the University of Illinois ag economist, and we talked about some of the things happening right here before the holidays, a lot of the issues we've been waiting on all year. We finally saw some action on just recently. Absolutely. It's just kind of uh like a broken loose at the last possible moment in uh, 2019. Uh, but I certainly think, you know, what we know as of today, uh, I think it would all be uh, good news in some respect for U.S. agriculture. Yeah, and let's take a look at some of them. Uh, we'll start with the biodiesel industry. Struggling all year, waiting to get the, the tax credit back that this thing's been on again, off again, on again, off again. And finally, it looks like it's going to be retroactively put back on. Right. What I understand in the legislation is retroactive back to 2017, so it's going to fill in uh, 17, 18, and 19, and then go through 2022. So just the backfill of the biodiesel tax credit uh, is going to be a real boon to biodiesel producers for that many years. Um getting access to some share of that retroactive tax credit is, is definitely a big deal. Great news for the biodiesel industry. Now on the trade front, as we draw closer to getting this phase one deal done with China, this has been the huge cloud over agriculture all year. And now to be this close, and we're hearing these numbers again, $40, dollars you know, in, in, in purchases. How do you think we're, we're going to get there? I mean, where's how do you see that playing out, or do you think that's realistic? Well, honestly, I, it's hard for me to see how you can get all the way to 40 or $50 billion of bank purchases from China. Um, first off, I think the way this is being structured, it's probably likely to be actually stretched out um over the next couple marketing years because, you know, maybe forward purchases will be counted along with spot purchases. So I think it's probably going to be spread out. And there's also follow-up information that clearly indicates that there's going to be some constraints on uh, China fulfilling these targets in terms of competitive market prices, uh, up to tariff quota, Levels you're hearing things like that so uh you add all that together uh i really think that it's probably still best based on what we know today to think of that 40 or 50 billion dollars as a target rather than a hard number uh that's the way i look at it at this point well it's such a big number i think i said million i meant billion 40 50 billion um So it it gives hope, but it also kind of raises the bar of expectation. So if anything that comes under that almost seems like a disappointment. But it's out there now. So to get there, and seemingly until they rebuild the swine herd in in China, it would seem like it's going to be hard to really jump up slaving sales uh, to huge numbers, at, at least for a while. So does that open the door for more obviously more, say, protein products, meat products going into China? But also, I would think, really opens the door for ethanol products. Yeah, uh, I think that you uh, will see once China completes its uh, current agreement uh, contracts with Brazil that you're going to see probably uh, a pretty strong return in soybeans as well. I, I really see them going towards, you know, back towards that 1.1 billion bushel purchases from us in the next uh, two to three years, which in and of itself is going, if that really does happen, that'll be a remarkable comeback for our soybean business with with China. In between that ramping up and where we are today, I do agree with you. I think the immediate purchases where it might be most beneficial will be in corn. I mean, come on, their their quota for U.S. uh, corn imports is 280 million bushels. I mean, if they bought all of that that would have a big impact on the corn balance sheet. Um, and again, like you said, I think you know, they're hardly buying any ethanol, and that could you know, if they would start buying two, three hundred, maybe even four hundred billion gallons of ethanol from us. That really changes the outlook for ethanol and gives us uh, some further uh, upward expansion in total ethanol demand. So uh you know, I agree. I mean if the agreement is actually finalized by uh the Chinese as it's being discussed, it is signed, And we always have to remember some caution. You know, we're always only one tweet mic away from uh everything being scuttled. So, uh, you know, I think we have to have a wait to see attitudes until it's actually fine. But from what we know now it's 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 definitely good news. University of Illinois Ag Economist, Scott Irwin. Scott, I've said this several times, that in this year of uh, uncertainty and challenges and problems for agriculture 2019, the year is certainly finishing up better than it started and has been throughout much of the year. Certainly some real optimism on several fronts going into 2020. Absolutely. Um, And I hope that the administration and on the political side is, is careful to not make the perfect the enemy of the good here, and that we keep in mind it would be a real boon to U.S. agriculture if we could just return in 2020 and 2021 going forward to something on the order of 25 to $30 billion of agricultural purchases by China will literally cause a mini-boom in the U.S. ag economy, Uh, you know, and so uh, that's what I'm excited about is just a return to that that level, let alone the 40, 50 million dollars, which I think is uh, kind of unrealistic, but let's keep in mind that 25 to 30 billion of purchases by China is a big deal that will have a major impact on the ag economy. Yeah, nice to have uh, uh, some good news to talk about and some hope and optimism, some bright spots as we head into the new year. Well, Scott, as always, we thank you for joining us, and uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, Always a pleasure, Mike. Take care. University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Farmers can't choose the weather, the trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced Dicanda with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all Dicanda salts for more successful on-target application. and it's straight from the Dicanda Experts, VASF. So make the confidence choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your VASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a US EPA restricted use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information American farmers and ranchers need to know Adams of Agriculture Now, that's what Mike Adams Welcome back to Adams on Agriculture on this Christmas Eve. I recently talked with Jarrett Renshaw, a political reporter for Reuters. He's been out on the presidential campaign trail, and I talked with him about some of the ag issues in this campaign and what he is hearing and seeing out on a busy campaign trail. <laughs> busy. Busy. A lot going on. Uh, it's so much a... Uh it's amazes amazing each day how much news gets generated from, from all sides, uh, both from the Trump side and from the Democratic uh, primary side. But we got a debate this week in uh, Thursday in California, and we have an well, and we have impeachment uh, today. So yeah, never stops. I I have found it interesting following you and uh, your reporting, especially when candidates are are discussing ag issues or trying to lay out their ag platforms. Has anything stood out uh, uh, to you in listening to those, and how have they resonated with their audiences? That's a good question. I mean, I think the the best way I understand it is that Democrats are using the the field. I'm using them generically. Some are doing it better than others, but... um, they view uh, winning the support in the ag communities as a, a test of electability. Okay. So if they can generate support there, you know, they can make the better case that they're better suited to beat Trump. So I think that's where they're going, um, and, 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 and that's their motivation largely. Some have more kind of cultural and geographic ties like Shore and, and even Buttigieg for that matter. Um you know, I, I don't. I'd be hard pressed to, to, to identify which one outside of maybe Klobuchar that's that's doing the best with the ag community. I but I, mean, I think Pete Buttigieg is certainly has the most uh, has the most visits in Iowa, has the most offices in, in kind of far flung counties, um, and certainly is is advertising on ag radio, is advertising in in, in, in on, on on all places where folks that ride tractors listen. So he certainly. Making the biggest push um, in those sectors, um, but i can't can't say for certain who who is who's resonated the most uh, among those. I mean, I, right now it's still Trump. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I think Trump is still still at the art of the theag community so and, and let's let's talk about that because I've had discussions with uh, uh, farmers and and media types and people on this topic and have, have lots of views. And, and I've had people ask me, "What am I? What am I hearing? What What do I think uh, about farmer support in the election?" And and you can't you can't make a blanket statement, but I think a general statement is from what I've heard, and and my assessment is, it's much like like the last election in that um, they may not like everything about Trump or what he's done or not done, but they don't see anything on the other side that that most in agriculture feel would be a better alternative. And therefore, the, the support stays with Donald Trump. Is, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think you can nail right on the head. I think the... Uh, I, I do think there's a portion of the ag community that's up for grads. Uh, unfortunately for Democrats, I'm not so sure, sure they have a candidate that's going to, uh, you know, take those... Uh, um, that will attract those types of voters, you know. It's, you know, it's... And the more and more I, I get into this, the, the better I think I understand. You know, Democrats are making place for urban, suburban areas, and and frankly, there's not not that much in common with folks from suburban, urban centers in the U.S. And, and rural areas. I mean, I think the, the, the two groups have you know have a different different set of priorities, um, and it's tough. Uh, and I think Democrats are struggling. Um, to come up with a message that appeals to both urban and suburban voters and rural voters. And I think ultimately they're going to side with the, um, you know, uh, uh, the urban and suburban folks because that's where the people are, right? And that's where, uh, that's where their base is, you know? Like, why do you rob a bank? It's where the money is, right? So I think ultimately I think the population and just uh, the politics of it, you know, favors our Democrats leaning towards issues that are, are, are more important to, to that group. And that's important to to rural voters. So I think ultimately that's where they have they have some issues and some troubles. We're talking to Jarrett Renshaw, political reporter for Reuters. And Jarrett, throughout much of this year, uh, it looked like President Trump could be vulnerable with farmers because we had an ongoing trade war with China. USMCA was in question, uh, biofuels issues. But here at the end of the year, all of a sudden now you can start saying, well, wow, we've got a deal with Japan. Uh, deal worked out with USMCA, very close, to, it looks like, to a deal with China. Uh, we'll see what happens with the RFS, but uh, it looks like a biodiesel tax credit. Uh, all of a sudden, there are some things uh, the administration can hang a hat on, tangible things they can say going into an election year. Yeah, and I think in previous conversations, we anticipated this, right, that there was... There was, as much as there was some 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 angst within the uh, the world communities, there clearly was like a blueprint to kind of uh, solidifying that. And, and I think you know we had anticipated, at least the U.S. and MCA was something that I think we we thought that you know at some point was going to get done. I think we were less you know confident about China, and I still think we have to see, right? I mean, um, where that where that particular thing goes. And Japan was good news. Um, Yes, I mean he clearly can go um, into those communities, and 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 more importantly, uh, folks like Senator Ernst and, and and some of the Republicans that are running in tough districts can go and uh, you know and have a longer list of successes. that I think do appeal and that are that are real substantive uh, uh, success stories. So I I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head again. I think the you know he's he certainly. He's moving in the a, in a better direction he was six months ago. RFX still seems, to be, um, still seems to be an issue. I guess the question is just, like, how much? Um, and I'm not, I'm not so certain I know the answer to that. I think, too, when you, when you look at this upcoming election, we know we're a very divided country, and you wonder uh, how, much, uh, uh, how big is the vote in the middle that's still undecided. Do you get a feel for that at all? I don't think much, right? I think this impeachment um, uh, saga here is kind of really hardened the battle lines, right? I think it's kind of drawn out um, that particular uh, scenario where people have kind of made up their minds, right? So I, I don't know if there's a, a real soft middle, um, particularly in rural. I mean, I, you know, I live in a, a, a suburban Philadelphia. I, I do think there's, you know, people I talk to um, who are, I think, you know, I haven't necessarily made up their minds, um, but they're very far in few between. I, I think Trump is so polarizing on both sides that he he forces people to make a decision um, one way or the other. you with them or against them. I, I think, by and large, most people have made up their minds. The real question is folks like Senator Ernst um, from Iowa, some of the congressional races in Iowa, um, and what is the Trump impact, if any, on those races? I, I still think those those where you'll see some, some perhaps uh, independents and moderates and, and folks that are kind of on the fence playing a much more bigger role in those types of races and less in the presidential race. And who gets out to vote? I think that's always a big key, Who who which party gets out to their base and really uh, gets them active in the voting process. I think it'll be interesting, too, Jared. I remember in the last election, uh, I had farmers overwhelmingly say their two biggest uh, issues uh, that they were concerned about, uh, Supreme Court justices and waters of the U.S. Those are the two big issues for many farmers uh, in the last election. Uh, I'm wondering what will be the biggest issues for them in this upcoming presidential election, other than I don't like the other other side, so I'm going to stick with what we've got. Uh, I wonder if there will be some issues that will jump to the top of the list. I know from the Republican side? They, are, they can't wait to debate the issues of energy and the environment. They, they view that as a, a real weakness on Democrats. And I think there's some, some alliance um, in, in rural America and kind of industrial America on the issue of, of, of energy um, and the environment. Um, you know, obviously uh, there's some elements of the environmental movement that, that targets the ag folks. Um, and, I, and I think the Republicans are going to do their best to kind of harness um, the Democratic opposition against them for those things and I think, you know, I think there Democrats I know in Pennsylvania, they're going to pay a price here, Western Pennsylvania is very dependent on uh, energy you've got big natural gas fields um, and you have leading candidates talking about uh, wanting to ban frack you know, that just does uh, not going to play well for, 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 for an area that's Dependent upon that, on, on that for, for paychecks, uh, so I think in the ag community you're going to see a lot of that too. Where uh, you know the the, the green new deal is, is very hostile in elements to the element of the, uh, the ag industry, and I think you know they're going to play a lot of defense. So I think that's where we'll see the soft spot for uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats. And Republicans. It'll be a, it'll be an interesting race in 2020, and we'll look forward to your coverage, Jared, Thanks for being with us. And Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you, Mike. Take it easy. Reuters, uh, Reuters political reporter Jared Renshaw joining us here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credend soybean grower. When you pick Credence, you get a precise variety that fits your fields. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a Credence soybean grower. When you pick Fredens, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pests and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Fredens retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back from Mike Adams. Lots of positive trade news here at the end of the year. As I mentioned earlier, we're certainly on the trade front, ending 2019 better than we started it. Let's talk about that with Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, I know you've, uh, you've achieved some impressive meat export numbers this year, given the circumstances, given the headwinds that you've had to deal with. But the, the developments here at the end of the year have to make you really optimistic going into uh, rather 2020. Uh, without a doubt, Mike. Uh, we're very um, optimistic, excited. Uh, we have some tailwinds for, for change, which is a great, great position to be in. But uh, if you look at... Uh, the Japan agreement that was announced earlier and, then of course, the, the current uh, focus of top China and USMCA, uh, yeah, things are definitely looking uh, positive by the end of 2020. Let's talk about USMCA. It's been described as, you know, some improve- for agriculture, some improvements in some areas like dairy and, and perhaps poultry, but more so overall, it's about certainty to keep what we had. How do you view uh, USMCA? Well, Mike, you're exactly right. It's uh, the it, NAFTA as it was in relation to beef, pork, and lamb um, was good. I mean, it worked. Um, but you're right. Um, we we have to create an environment of stability and uh, certainty going forward, and and uh, that's exactly what uh, the USMCA will do, assuring zero duties uh, on all those products into both Mexico and Canada. And keep in mind, you look at. Uh, Mexico, uh, number two market value-wise for pork, number three market for beef, and number one market for lamb. You look at Canada, um, number four market for pork, number five market for beef, and number three market for lamb. The pork are almost just under $4 billion in sales on the export side. So very, very very important destinations for our products, and and, and like you said, the uh, uh USMCA getting it passed and implemented will put some certainty into the supply chain uh, as that's being suppliers to both of those markets. Yeah, I, not oversimplifying it, but its I think it's fair to say um, it was almost more about avoiding what we could have lost but right, even more important than what we may have gained in the new deal. Exactly right. Yes, uh, like I said, from our viewpoint, NAFTA didn't work, but we're the first to admit there's a lot of aspects of, of the NAFTA agreement that needed to be updated, and, and it sounds like they were on a lot of fronts. So that's great. But we did we reassured assured our place here in terms of the stability of our products. And one of the things that's worth mentioning, the importance of, uh, of Canada-Mexico and Mexico on a product mix standpoint can't be oversimplified uh, either. I mean. Asian products on both the beef and the pork side are, you know, are quite a bit different from the, uh, the product mix going into Canada and Mexico. And I'll give you one quick example. Uh, the round, the, the hindquarter on beef and, and the ham on pork, These are not added to generally go to Asia so much, but there's a lot of demand in Canada and Mexico. So, so from a product mix standpoint, that's another reason this, uh, this agreement is so important we we'll are talking to you with Dan Holstrom, president and CEO of U.S. Meat Export Federation. All right, Dan, um, what does getting a, at least a phase one deal with China uh, completed and wrapped up, what does that mean for U.S. meat exports, you think? Well, I think uh, this is more positive news, without a doubt. I think we've all heard over the last several months all the talk about what's going on, especially on the pork side in China with uh, African Swine fever. Uh you know, they they've had considerable liquidation and uh and and you're looking at a very uh, uh short supply scenario going into twenty twenty. So that lines up well with uh talk of this phase one deal and uh yeah, there's some big numbers being thrown around, but I'll tell you, we're, we're more focused on the details of, this, of whatever the agreement is. In terms of uh, number one, can you get some of the tariffs reduced, which we're we'll hopefully will happen? And, and the other thing is uh, some of these non-tariff trade issues, uh, some of these barriers. Uh, I'll give you one example: on the beef side, we have to uh, produce non-hormone-treated beef, and if there were any uh, relief on some of these tariffs. Non-tariff trade issues, uh, you know, the, yeah, this could be big as well as far as the uh, number of or, or the percentage of our production that was qualified to go to uh, China. So so there's uh, a lot of interesting things going on, and, and when we see the details, they're saying we'll see all the details in January. Uh, when we see those details, we'll have a much better picture of exactly what that will look like, but positive overall. And then when we look at the uh, recent developments with the European Union, there's renewed hope or optimism that we could work out some kind of a deal with them. That, I've, I've always said that's, that may be the heaviest lift of all, given all the baggage and the, the history we have to deal with there and their reluctance to really open up on some key issues, especially when it comes to U.S. meat. But are, are you more optimistic on the EU front going into the new year? Well, I think uh, I think we're optimistic on the EU as well, and and there's really two things going on there. We've got the, uh, the EU beef agreement, which goes back to August when that was announced, and uh, um, it still looks like it's on track to be implemented January one, which will give the the US duty free access, our own quota, zero duty. Uh, today we share the quota with other importing countries, so. So this is, uh, this is good in terms of, uh, of uh, you know, additional uh, unstuttered access into the European Union. We know the demand's there. The problem has been being able to supply chilled beef, high-quality chilled beef, uh, 52 weeks of the year. This this new quota will take care of that, and and we will basically have uh, 52 week a year access. So this is a good thing. The other thing that's going on, of course, is the whole Brexit uh, scenario, and uh, you know we're we're hopeful that uh, you know a a separate trade agreement, uh, which will take some time, but a trade agreement with the UK might be possible as well. Which may have some uh, different, uh, could potentially have different requirements than what the EU has. So these are all things that are very positive in nature, and uh, and yes, to your earlier point, uh, we're excited. The stars seem to be aligning very well for meat exports in 2020. Without a doubt, and I think the real key for your listeners is that. we produce some of the highest quality savus beef in the world and, uh, and and pork in the world, and uh, and, and the world is short. So th- this is an opportunity uh, uh, that that we're well positioned to take advantage of as we head into 2020. Are there some other markets we should watch closely in 2020? Well, yeah. Over time, um, you know, especially with these headwinds the last two years, we the industry. Um, Uh, And we've been part of this as well, working with the industry to develop some of these uh, smaller emerging regions. And uh, you look at uh, Central America, uh, places like Guatemala, Honduras, Panama. You look at South America, places like Colombia, Chile, and Peru. And even Africa, where we're starting to see more and more bees of particular variety needs. And some muscle cuts go into places like like Ghana and South Africa, they're all small if you look at them individually, but you add them up as a group, and uh, there's some significant volume going to these markets. So, yeah, I think we need to keep an eye on some of these emerging regions as well. I mentioned this earlier, but given all those headwinds faced this year, 2019, all things considered, was a pretty good year without out. doubt. Um, we're going to have a new record on, on beef and and pork, which is hard to believe, but uh, we will. Um, but, you know, the reality is that, uh, you know, 2020 could even be better and uh, and, and more, I would say, a more uh, well-rounded demand base. Um, of course, on the pork side, China will be, China-Hong Kong region will be big, but... We're seeing growth in some of the other areas as well. So yes, we're in a, we're in a very good position uh, where we're not dependent on just a few markets. We we have a pretty good uh, uh, you know base of uh, call it ten to fifteen major markets that are now taking our products, which is always a good position to be in. Yeah, you never want to go through what we went through this year, face the headwinds you faced when it comes to trade. But not that you weren't already. But I think it even uh, Uh, puts more emphasis on developing other markets and certainly that's been done this year. Without a doubt. And, you know, it's no different than your savings portfolio. You want to be diversified. Well, that's the same thing with uh, when you're looking at the world and where you want to sell your products to. The more diversified we can become, the more balanced we are and, and, you know, hopefully the less... uh, uh, prone to uh, downturns in any one given market, so yes we're we're happy about the fact that we have uh, some new new regions coming on, and of course, this is a ripple effect. If you increase meat exports and meat demand continues to grow, meat trade continues to grow uh, that creates the, the demand uh, you know for more production in the us which creates the demand for feed has that ripple effect. It sure does. Yeah, not, you bring up a great point there, Mike. We're not we're not just talking about the pork, and lamb. We're talking about soybeans. We're talking about corn. Uh, it has an impact all the way through the supply chain, and and, uh, and and we're we're happy to be a very very small part of it. You know, this is this is uh, a lot more fun when you have a little bit of things, a few things going your direction for a change. Mm-hmm. And that's why you hear corn growers and soybean growers often say their number one market still the livestock, the livestock industry, and this is uh, uh, more proof of that. Well, Dan, uh, it's been it's been an interesting year, that's for sure. But uh, in a year that seems like it's had its more than its share of negatives, there've been some real positives too, and it's good to see the year ending up on a more positive note. As always, uh, thank you for joining us and uh, bringing us up to date on the work to develop these markets for U.S. meat products around the world. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Some measure success by Italian seats, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. And breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres, that's smart. With Credence soybeans, you get a precise variety of bread figure acres. And that credence variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF team advisor. Always read and follow the directions. information Americans farmers and ranchers need to know, Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us. We continue to provide some tips and information for the best Handling of your equipment during the winter months, and we know a lot of equipment is going to be used in places this winter because of the late harvest and the challenges there and the harvesting that will go on right through the winter months. We're especially looking at how to uh, have the best performance through the use of your fuel. We've talked in the past about icing and, and gelling with Chad Christensen, product quality and additives expert for Cenex Premium Diesel. Today we want to talk about storing diesel through the winter, and, Chad, here again, this is something that uh, farmers need to keep in mind. What, what's the, what's something they need to remember uh, to, when they store their diesel fuel throughout the winter so they don't wind up with a problem? Sure. And, and, and storing store diesel fuel through the winter shouldn't be, a, shouldn't be an issue. Um, a diesel shelf life is between 6 to 12 months, and that's under dry and contaminant-free conditions. Um, but you can actually extend that out past the year with the right additive package and, and implementing some best practices. such as uh, well, I think you need to really focus on tank maintenance. Um, you need to keep that you need to keep that diesel fuel dry, like I mentioned, and you need to keep that um, you know in a place where you're not going to see contaminants gather. Um, and, and that's really going to going to keep your diesel fuel ready for you come springtime, even if you fill up after after harvest. You can't just uh, forget about it during the winter time, then. Yeah, no, absolutely. You need to you need to keep that dry, and, and you need to keep it contaminant free. Um, you know, check your tank. Uh, you check your storage tank regularly for water, um, keeping it away from those low areas. Also, filling your equipment. Um, prior to shutting it down for the night. And and this will minimize that headspace in the fuel tank and and protect against that condensation if it fills overnight. Does the type of fuel make a difference in how well it uh, stores through the winter? Well, a, a number two and a number one diesel fuel will store very similarly. Um, so, so having a blended fuel will absolutely help it um, store over the winter. That way you're not dealing with any kind of gelling issues uh, or any kind of filter blocking issues um, over the winter. So, so, yeah, having a blended diesel fuel or winterized diesel fuel really makes a difference. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see or hear about that are made in, in winter fuel storage? Yeah, I would I would think the first would be tank gelling up and blocking filters uh, due to not blending that fuel or, or improperly blending that diesel fuel, like I mentioned. Um, and, and you really need to understand your diesel's uh, winter fuel characteristics, and, and that's understanding the cloud point or at, at which point that wax will start to appear uh, making that diesel cloudy, and then understanding your fuel's cold filter plugging point um, and, and a lot of people see that test as as gospel, but really it's a dated test, and, and they utilize a 45 micron uh, filter uh, to get that cold weather temperature number. And so that's a lot a lot bigger micron filter than than what's being uh, utilized on your your equipment today. And and work with your fuel provider to make sure that your diesel will perform. Uh, at the temperatures, when the temperatures are low, and, and, and so they can kind of work with that forecast. Um, another common issue is is delayed engine start, and this could be related to a, a typical number two diesel, lower seat pain number, you know, compared to a premium diesel. Let's talk more about how to prolong uh, the quality of your fuel through the winter and to uh, avoid some of these pitfalls. Uh, what are some other things they could do? I mean, they may just think, "Oh, it looks dry. I think we're safe here. I'm okay." Uh, but maybe they need to look at it a little more closely, more a little more maintenance than maybe they think about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think running a, a winterized premium diesel fuel like like Cenex Winter Master, coupled with that regular tank maintenance, like I mentioned, will drastically reduce the potential for. For any issues um, associated with storing diesel over the winter, um, Wintermaster is blended right at the terminal, and it's injected with the most complete adequate package on, on the market today. And our our storage stabilizer will extend the length of time that it can be stored in your fuel barrel or your fuel tank. And then our demultifier is what uh, actively pushes that unwanted water to the bottom of that tank so it can be drained out and, and not go through your fuel's tank. Uh, Fuels equipment, um, and, and then our seat tank improver, uh, which means faster starts on those cold winter mornings, and, and then lastly our cold flow improver. Like I mentioned, that CFPP number, and and what our what our additive package is doing is keeping that wax suspended to prevent it from settling to the bottom of your tank, and, and then blocking those filters, you know, which causes that downtime. Of course, this year for some harvest might take them right to planting times. Yeah, this year has been uh, this year has been a little bit of an anomaly, and and, and running that uh, premium diesel fuel uh, will definitely benefit benefit during the uh, cold winter harvest. The main thing is you don't want to uh, have an unpleasant surprise at some point, right? It's especially for those who uh, maybe are done with harvest and. Uh, Uh, They think, you know, they've got some leftover diesel, and and they're storing it, and they think it's going to be fine. You don't want to wind up whenever you go to use it to have an unpleasant surprise. Absolutely, and and that's the worst, is needing to get something done and having the weather to to get something done and then then not having the fuel to work right for you. Um, So, yeah, work with your local Senex premium diesel provider to understand uh, what kind of fuel you have in that barrel to, to make sure you're ready to go come spring planting. Take yep. the proper precautions uh, to extend that uh, storage life for your fuel. That's Chad Christensen, product quality and additives expert for Cinex Premium Diesel. Chad, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mike. All right, that wraps it up for today. Thank you for joining us here on AOA, Adam on Agriculture. The sounds of success vary from person to person. <laughs> success sounds like this to a credent soybean road. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credent soybeans come with agronomic expertise from DASO. That means expert advisors should bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Know the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credentials retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow local directions.